Thank you for leading us in worship. I remember, David, uh, when you taught us that song. It was early on in COVID. Restrictions, lockdown, and you shared how you and Cheryl had been uh, singing that song, and you shared that with us, and that is a gift. I love it the way that songs often are connected to stories, sometimes our own personal story of how God has been at work in our life, uh, and sometimes the story of others. And I've been reading uh, through a psalm a day uh, for the last quite a while, and just reminded of uh, how much the stories, these psalms, come out of a story. And it is a gift when someone shares that story with us of maybe in a, a deep, difficult place, a pit that they were in, and how they cried out to God and God saved them. Sometimes it was a long time waiting, and sometimes it was uh, way more, way better than expected. I want to pray together. Uh, just before we do, I, I got a, received a, an email just uh, yesterday, I think, from Lauren and Sue Lambert, and they are grandparents with uh, Paul and uh, his wife Jackie had a son. So their grandson's name is Luke, and uh, so celebrations in life as well. Let's pray together. Oh, living God, we thank you that you are the God who does not change in terms of your great faithfulness and your character. Lord, in the challenges and difficulties of life, you are an ever-present help. And Lord, we know that there are some going through significant financial challenges, health challenges, relational challenges. And uh, Lord, just as we sang earlier this morning, you know, can the grave say there is no hope? Uh, not because of you. You have infused hope into the most unlikely of situations. And Lord, we pray that those who are feeling like they have lost all hope might find their hope renewed in you this day. Lord, we also celebrate with those who celebrate. We think of uh, the new grandson for, for Lauren and Sue. And, uh, and Lord, we thank you for the gift of new life. We thank you, Lord that uh, you are the God who gives us every good and perfect gift. It comes from you. And it is right and well that we pause in the midst of our days to thank you, Lord, when a good gift comes our way and to recognize you as the ultimate giver. Lord, as we uh, come to your word today, it is a great gift to us. And we pray, Lord, that you would, by your Holy Spirit, open the eyes of our minds, but also open our hearts to receive what you have for us, Lord, that uh, we might indeed meet with you and be changed by meeting with you. Amen. You ever gone to a hospital? Huh. If you've ever checked into a hospital, you'll know that one of the first things they do once you get past, you know, the uh, information desk is to have a nurse or a doctor check your vital signs to assess your physical health. They'll check your blood pressure, they'll check the body temperature, your heart rate, uh, sometimes they'll check your breathing, even your oxygen saturation levels. These are all vital indicators of the current state of your physical health or ill health. Most people don't realize that there are also various vital signs that help us assess the state of our spiritual health and faith. 
As I was reading through the passage of Scripture in James that we're going to be looking at today, and I invite you to turn to, to James, I began to think of what James was doing as a spiritual diagnostic work, helping people check the vitality of their spiritual health and well-being. And so uh, let's look at uh, James chapter 1, and we're going to read from verse 27, sorry, from to the end of, to, to, to from verse 19 to 27. James 1. And as I'm reading this, I want to encourage you to, to listen maybe for what are some of the vital signs that James is, is checking, is looking for. Okay? My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror. And after looking at himself goes away, and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues, deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Well, did you catch any of the vital signs James is looking for? In, in verses 19 to 20, he tells us to check our speech. Okay? Especially in stressful situations, our reactivity. And he's concerned in the next verses about, well, in those verses about the pious person with a sharp tongue. In verses 21 to 25, he tells us to check if our faith is working. Had my watch the other day and I looked, wow, time is really slow. Uh, my watch had stopped working, right? Well, I guess it was still working twice a day. <laughs> Just didn't know exactly when that would be. Okay, and then in, in verses 26 to 27, James broadens what to look for in our speech, you know, in self-control, and our response to vulnerable people in our circle of influence. And so let's look at each of these areas in detail. First, our speech and reactivity. Are you quick-tempered, we might ask? James begins this section of the letter by calling his readers' attention to how a person with a healthy faith should respond in a, in a stressful situation or, you know, when, when anger is stirred up. He says, take note of this. That is, listen up. This is very important. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. The Greek word translated slow indicates a a sense of hesitation or, or delay. Unfortunately, I think most people tend to live this proverb in reverse. Think about the, the last couple of times that you lost your temper. 
what triggered or activated it? How did you respond? Which of these two best describes your response? Were you slow to listen, quick to speak, and quick to become angry, or quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry? You know, the ancient Greek writer Aristotle wisely pointed out when he said about anger, he said, anyone can become angry, that is easy. But to be angry with the right person, to the right degree, at the right time, for the right purpose, and in the right way, this is not easy. Some might say impossible. Well, James is wanting us to avoid the sins associated both with passive anger, you know, resentment can just be brewing under the surface, or with active anger. We often think of that's anger, but both are anger. I think we also do well to remember that not all anger is wrong. He's not saying never be angry. For example, in the Gospels, we see Jesus experience and express his anger on several occasions. To his disciples, when they are, uh, you know, saying to the little children, Jesus does not have time for you. Jesus, it says, was indignant. He was very angry. Or in response to some of the Pharisees' callous attitudes, it says he was angry. And when he cleared the temple, of course, when it had been turned into a marketplace instead of a place of prayer. There is such a thing as righteous anger that is helpful and not hurtful. I remember, I'll never forget the, I was at an abuse prevention workshop a number of years ago, and and the leader shared a story of a woman who who I later met. I'll call her Abigail. And as a young teen, Abigail was sexually abused by her stepfather. And one day while Abigail was visiting her friend's house, she began to share with her friend what was happening to her in her own home. And her friend was deeply disturbed and horrified. And so she told her dad, and her dad happened to be a pastor. Her dad was absolutely furious at the stepfather and what he had been doing. And he promised to help Abigail in whatever way that he could, which on this occasion included calling the police. And in the safety of their home, the policeman came over and Abigail shared her story, and as he was sharing her story, she noticed that the, the policeman was wiping away tears from, her, from his eyes. And Abigail later said, it was the policeman's tears and the pastor's anger that helped her on, this, on her healing journey. It can be healing and helpful in the right settings and in the right way. Well, James also wants us to check if our faith is getting a regular workout. You know, we like to work out physically, and how about spiritually? If you were with us last week, you may remember that earlier in verse 18, James talked about God's gift of of new birth that is given to those, and we looked at that, who who open their hearts to God and and welcome him in and ask him to to clean house and to, to make it new. Well, this new birth that is described metaphorically in verse 21 as, as the word planted in you which can save you. And I think that picks up on Jesus' parable of the sower and the seeds. 
I mean, Jesus talked about this story of a sower went out to sow seeds, and the seeds fall in different kinds of soil, and some fall in the path, and they don't even take germinate at all, and others shallow soil, and others in deep soil. And this life-giving truth of God's sacrifice for us in Christ, this great truth that God wants to plant in our hearts, needs to be worked out, nurtured to maturity in the fruits of his grace. And you may recall in Jesus' parable that his word needs to be both received well, you know, in good, rich, deep soil. And it also needed to be protected from weeds, that Jesus said, that, that can choke out its effect in our lives. And so, in like manner, James tells us not only to receive the word of God into our hearts, but also, I think, weed and feed it to maturity. You see, he says, get rid of, and the word in Greek literally means take off. It's often used of, of clothes, and so in, uh, in Acts, when they when they were taking off their cloaks. That's the language used. And it's often used as a metaphor in the New Testament of putting off the old dirty clothes of one's former way of life and lifestyle and then putting on the new clothes and the, and the lifestyle of Christ. Now James chooses a word that reminds us of how offensive and detestable sin really is. You know, he says uh, filthy, right? And Actually, in the Old Testament, there's a story of the high priest in Zechariah chapter 3, and when he appears before God, you know, here the priest is dressed in all of his garments, right? Special ones reserved. And yet, in God's sight, it's just filthy rags. And he needs to totally change his clothes to become so he can be the person that God is wanting him to be. Well, we might wonder, what kind of moral filth, he says, and evil does James have in mind? Just did an exercise. I, I looked through the James's letter to see, well, what kinds of things does he talk about? And within the letter, he identifies greed, pride, arrogance, anger, bitterness, selfish ambition, favoritism, injustice, slander, self-indulgence, and his list goes on. And so when James talks about being so prevalent, abundance, this abundance of sin and evil need to be gotten rid of. But we cannot get rid of all of these just in our own power. What we need is a new power at work in us, the living and active power of God's Word through His Holy Spirit that activates that truth and works it out in our lives. Notice James says, the word planted in you which can save you. And it's not just talking about our initial conversion where we are given this new birth in Christ when we come and open up our lives to him. But it's this ongoing work in our lives as well. As uh, Pastor Sam Albury points out, he says, the way we get rid of sin is by humbly accepting God's word. If you want to have a better heart, a more godly mind, a cleaner mouth, and more productive hands, make sure you use your ears. We are not going to change without God's word. So how do we allow or enable the living word of God to change and transform us? Every time we open the Bible, it is essential that we have a listening posture of, James says, humble acceptance. Now, in an age filled with endless distractions and decreasing attention spans, 
This is no small order, is it? But that is why it is all the more important that we learn to focus. Remember during my sabbatical, that was one of the words that God just impressed upon me for a time. Focus, Dave. I need you to be listening here. Focus, okay? And, and not deceive ourselves into thinking that, oh yeah, oh, been there, done that, didn't work. If that's the case, James says, that the problem could be that you're merely listening to the word and not being prepared to do it. You know, he says it's like the person who, who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. The irony was as I did that this week. I remember getting up in the morning and looking myself in, in the mirror and my hair was just sticking up, kind of like my grandson's often does. And I thought, I'm going to take, I'm gonna need to take care of that. And then I only remember just as I got to church. Now, fortunately, I was the first one here. And the first thing I did was run to the bathroom, put some water in my hair, get my comb, and, and, you know, and, and comb it up there. But I thought, wow. Um, now, how often do I look at God's word, though, in the morning, think to myself, I need to do something about that, and never give it a second thought? If I'm honest, too often. Too often. So how can we let the word of God, Paul will say, dwell richly and fruitly, fruitfully in our lives? And James says, you know, this implanted word. And James says, by looking intently into the perfect law that gives freedom. I looked up that word intently. and it's in, in Greek, sometimes when you look up a word, it kind of gives some color to it. And in the Greek, the verb means, I stoop to see. And it's used of the beloved disciple when he goes to check out, he's seen this, the stone is rolled away from the empty tomb, but then he goes and he stoops in to see in more detail for himself. That's the word there. I look into carefully in order to become better acquainted with. And James calls it this perfect law that gives freedom. And I think, what a great description of Jesus' teaching. Especially Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount, where he clarified God's intended meaning and purpose of the law. That it is for human flourishing in all areas of life. In our world, we think freedom is the license to do whatever I want. But in the Bible, it's the ability to live out the law of Christ. To be freed from things that trigger my anger or lust, or whatever it may be. Freedom from, in order, freedom to. I remember uh, in Bible college studying a very difficult philosopher, Paul Ricoeur, but there was a line in, his, in this philosophy book that just jumped out at me, and I never forgot it. He said, evil, evil is the invention of freedom that abdicates or restricts freedom. It really does. Freedom is the invention, evil is the invention of freedom that restricts freedom. Uh, recently, we, our family, we went to watch the Vancouver Symphony play out at Deer Lake Park in Burnaby. And we were there early enough to hear them practicing, warming up. And you know, when the orchestra was warming up, everybody was free to do their own thing. 
And it sounded like chaos. It's like, did we come to listen to this? And yet, when the performance begins, and everybody is now following the director and the, la- and the notes and following the rules of music, it sounds delightful. One was like a disaster, and the other is delightful. And that is a law that gives freedom. You know, Christians have long known and experienced the benefits of reading and studying the Word of God together, better together. The believers in Acts, we read that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Devoted, that word means continually, persistently attentive, not merely dabbling. This week, uh, when we began our Bible study on encounters with Jesus, we were looking at the story of Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19. And what we wanted to do was just really listen to the word. Listening and then taking note. What are the words or phrases that are jumping out? What questions is it raising for me? And as we did that, and then we we read it again, but this time each one of us took on a different character. One listened as Zacchaeus in the story, another as the crowd, another person as Jesus. And, And we said, we want to know if there's any special insights from putting yourself in the story and listening from the vantage point of that person. And it was amazing. We were moved deeply by what we discovered together in that We learned more together than we would ever have learned on our own. And we discovered that when we were doing that, we encountered Jesus. The Jesus of that story was alive and well together. And we also need to listen to the word on our own. It's not merely a... And, uh, you know, I was uh, reading somewhere recently about... There was a challenge that they were facing at the Academy Awards, you know, when somebody gets, you know, their Oscar, I think it is, in there. And then when they go up, they can be kind of long-winded. And they've got time parameters, they're televised, and so they developed a strategy, and they told you person, each person, if you win and you go up to do your acceptance speech, you have this long to do it. And then after, the, after you know, that time is up, the 70-piece orchestra is going to start up on a nice rousing number and... That's your cue to get off the stage. And you know, even Hollywood stars discovered they cannot compete with a 70-person orchestra, you know, <laughs> playing very robustly. And Sam Albury, he said, there's a danger that this is how we treat God. You know, when we finally get around to opening our Bibles, it can be as if we're saying to God, okay, Lord, uh, speak to me right now. You've got two minutes before I leave for work and anything longer, and then we kind of mentally play him off the stage with whatever is next on our agenda that we need to get to. We need to give him more time than that. For some people, it's the morning. I was talking to someone. They said, you know, I have a long commute on the, on the sky train. That's a great time for me to, to do it. That's great. For some people, it's going to be at the end of the day, I find I need a a journal to help me focus, to be intentional, and also to open up the scripture, not just at the beginning of the day, but oh, the reminder later on the day, otherwise I do the same thing that I did with my hair this week, totally forget about it. We need to ask ourselves also, just an exercise, which of the spiritual truths that I learned this week have I applied? 
I did that exercise. I was great to find out that I had been applying some of them. Some of them were being very relevant in my life, and others totally missed. Well, James will do a a third kind of checkup for us. He says, does your religion practice godly ethics? He's always, James is always contrasting immature and incomplete faith with mature, healthy, complete faith. Our faith needs to be working out with God's word in principle, as he talked about, but also in practical ways like speech ethics, which he talks about in verse 26, social ethics, the beginning of verse 27, and moral ethics in verse, at the end of verse 27. Now, James has already explored, you know, one aspect of speech ethics in the opening verses we looked at. How will we respond when we get angry? And he will address other kinds of aspects of speech speech ethics later in his letter. But in verse 27, he also raises the importance of God-like social and moral ethics. Or practicing pure religion, he calls it. Now, frequently in the Old and New Testament, we are told of God's special concern for the widows and orphans, those who were especially poor and and vulnerable and therefore easily ignored or exploited. For example, in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 18, we read, He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow, and he loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And then the prophet Isaiah, in in Isaiah chapter 1, he reminds us that that God is wanting you to get involved in that as well. That's what he wants. And, And he says in Isaiah 1, verses 16 to 17, Stop doing wrong, learn to do right, seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, and plead the case of the widow. Now, I want to look at James 1, verse 27 again. Notice how he refers to God. Sometimes God is the faithful one. Here he says, God our Father. I think James is is pointing out, he wants us to imitate our Heavenly Father in this way. Right? And to care about the poor and the vulnerable just like he does. And the second example of pure religion that James identifies at the end of chapter 1 is to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Moral ethics, we would say. Now, throughout church history, many Christians have thought, you know, to keeping oneself from being polluted by the world, that this is a call to totally withdraw from the world. In fact, in the 3rd century, especially 2nd and 3rd century, there was a whole movement You know, the desert fathers, people would flee from the worldliness of the world and go out into the desert and to live in isolation. Uh, Mennonites over time have often, you know, by living in colonies, trying to escape from the world. Yet James, like Jesus, he expects believers to be active in the world. In the world, but not of it, Jesus said. But he wants to make sure that we do not take our cues from how to live from the world. One of the book titles that captured my attention, when I, and uh, which I w- was able to read during my sabbatical, was 
Why Social Justice is Not Biblical Justice by Scott Allen. And uh, Scott Allen said, as Christians, we, of course, share a deep commitment to, social, to justice, as with the social justice movements in our world. But the world's understanding and application of justice is often not the same as God's. So if we're practicing justice, but we have different definitions, it's not going to be the same, is it? And then there, he, he talked about, for example, a political leader who was claiming that providing unrestricted access to abortion is reproductive justice. And yet, as Scott pointed out, in an appalling irony, this moral reasoning has made abortion the leading cause of death for black lives in America today. Every year, well in excess of a quarter of a million unborn black children are lost through abortion. And in New York City, more black babies are aborted than are born alive. And yes, this is justice? It may be social justice according to the standards of this world, and that's what James is talking about, the standards of this world. But it is not biblical justice. For in the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of God, by the way, is the happiest place on earth, and it is the most just place on earth, in that kingdom of God, both vulnerable mothers and their unborn children are deeply loved and valued by God, who wants them to be cared for in their distress, as James put it, just like he does. That's going to mean having a workout of our faith. Well, someone has called what James is doing in this letter, kind of doing this, you know, spiritual vitality checkup, and also moving us to act out the Word of God. They called it a second reformation. A second reformation. Because in the first reformation, led by Martin Luther in the 16th century, it focused on a reformation of core beliefs. It was the main belief at that time that you could earn your way into salvation. Okay? And Martin Luther said, that's not what the Bible is saying. The Bible is saying we are saved by sheer grace through faith, just trusting that God has done all of that work. But James, James believes that, but he, he wants us then to live that out. And James calls us to a reformation, not only core beliefs, but core behaviors. Speech ethics, social ethics, moral ethics. As we attentively listen to God's word and do what it says. So, check your vital signs. Am I quick-tempered? Or quick to listen? Is my faith getting a regular workout? Do I practice God-like social and moral ethics? Just take a moment to think about that. Is there, is there one thing? One thing. Um, one of the pastors of House for All Nations, he, his, his often repeated line is, learn one thing, do one thing. Learn one thing, do one thing. One thing. I 
As we pray, I invite the worship team to come back up to the front. Let's pray. Gracious, loving God, who is our Father, we thank you that you have such a deep heart for all of your children. And you long for us not only to know the good news, but to live it. Because you know it is the most fruitful way to live. It is the most joyful way to live. To live free from from distorted and destructive ways of thinking and responding in the heat of the moment. And to be able to respond more as imitators of you. Lord, we pray that the word that we have opened today, that it might be planted deep within our hearts, that you might bring it back to our minds in the most uh, appropriate situation, whereas there is an opportunity to live it or to share it with someone else. That, Lord, we might be indeed imitators of you for your honor and your glory. Amen. Thank you, David. Uh, yeah, while I was listening to uh, David's preaching, I remember uh, a book uh, that I read before. The book was about fearing God, and it talked about all the benefits of fearing God, what God promised to the person who really fears God. So I was so excited to learn. So how can I fear God? But then the conclusion was, you just need to tell God that you want to fear Him, and you need to pray. That was the conclusion. I was like, that's it? And I think that is it, because we cannot do it on our own strengths. Even though we are willing, we have maybe no ability to really do what we have to do. But God can, and God is more than willing to uh, help us. So why don't we still uh, look at him? Because we want to imitate Jesus. We want to be like Jesus, right? So why don't we stand up and look at God who is more than able to help us to do it. I think we enjoyed that. <laughs> Very much so. By grace and grace alone. And we need grace continually in our lives. Remember years ago singing a song, Your Grace is Enough. Except at the time, I was feeling like it doesn't feel like it's enough. And I just sensed God saying at the time, then ask for more and ask for more. So may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. If you'd like prayer, we have some, uh, I think the Waddells are here available for as part of the prayer team just up on your right-hand side. I encourage you to take advantage of that. And also, you uh, might want to pick up some coffee, and it's such a nice day, you might just want to go and visit outside in the parking lot there, uh, just, you know, in case you want to enjoy the summer weather that we have. And just a reminder that next Sunday, we are going to be 
outdoor for the service and for lunch together. Amen.